Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this week's version of the Thursday Talk. My name is Tracy Olston, and Dr. Charles Hunley is joining me today. We're going to talk about the 2023 guidelines for emergency physicians. Um, as you guys are all aware, 2023 guidelines have come out. It is kind of flipping everything on its head for inpatient and emergency medicine doctors, making sure that they know all of the new rules and regulations around being able to report those evaluation and management services. Dr. Hunley, you are embedded with emergency medicine physicians day in and day out. Uh, from your perspective, are they ready for this? Do they understand what's coming? Yeah. Um, wow. That's, that's a huge loaded question. You just kind of threw me a softball. Um, for one, as we know, and you know, um, really these things were not approved until what October, November. Um, I think most physicians like myself, um, are working so hard. They don't even raise their head up. Um, we've been doing the same type of templates, the same type of emergency medicine visits. Um, most of, you know, there are still a lot of emergency medicine people who do it on paper, not just electronic. Um, we've been doing it for a long time that way, you know? And so the answer is no, we're not ready. The answer is it's coming out. I mean, I, I just have people going, we need an emergency meetings. We have to have this. We need to tell you what we're doing. And it is December, you know, and less than a month to half a month, we're going to be rolling out new guidelines and it's in the holidays. It's everything. It is a very confusing time. And so I think, um, hurry up and wait and hurry up and now try to fix something before January 1st is going to be a very um, stressful and enlightening process. Absolutely. I think a lot of administrators didn't really do justice to the physicians when they decided to hold off and wait on educating the physicians on the 2023 guidelines, because you know, they were hoping to have some changes made with split shared and um, we're really tossing back and forth. Were, were some of these guidelines going to go into effect? Were they not going to go into effect? And those actually did get rolled out and approved in the final register November 1st. And so, um, you know, by not educating in advance, really those administrators did set a lot of the physicians up for a very stressful period at the end of the year, trying to get to where they need to be for January 1. Yeah, no. And, and in fact, I mean, one of the things that we actually did, and, and to your credit, because you're my partner, you, we started educating our clients in September, October of, hey, these changes are coming and we need to prepare for them. Um, I mean, we design grids and templates and, and conversations and workflows. And I give you a credit to that. You actually um, have that laid out to where um, I feel confident that our partners that we have will be ready for it. I will say to you that the emergency departments, it's going to be very, very like, how does this fit to my, to my practice? And where do I not screw something up? 
So speaking of emergency departments, um, that's really what we're here to talk about today. So let's sort of break down a little bit about the changes that are coming for 2023. So for the uh, emergency department, your CPT codes, the 99281 through 99285 are still valid CPT codes. Those are not going away. What has changed with those codes is the actual narrative. And I think there's a couple of really important things to point out here. Um, with 2023, we are no longer holding our visits on history exam um, and medical decision making. So it's no longer those three key elements. What it is now is it is off of your medical decision making. Now, just like with the inpatient guidelines and with outpatient, they are saying a medically appropriate history and or examination. I've been listening to a couple of conference talks, podcasts, and what they're really saying in the emergency department is when we're talking about a medically appropriate history or a medically appropriate examination, that's a little different than if it was an inpatient hospital um, physician who is seeing a patient that we know why they are coming in and we know that there's nothing else going on other than what they are treating. In the emergency department, what um, several of the conference talks that I've been listening to have said, best practice is those emergency medicine doctors should really be doing more of a comprehensive history and physical exam because a lot of times patients, especially that don't have insurance, if they're coming into the emergency room, they're probably coming into the emergency room and this may be the first visit they've had by a physician in up to a year or even two or three years. And so by just doing a targeted history and physical examination, you may, you may be missing other things that are going on with that patient and they may not have access to healthcare. You may just be it as the emergency medicine provider. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Hunley? No, and that's exactly it. I think um, most of the time in you know, and I'm, I'm bringing a, a conversation from yesterday when um, one of my one of my extenders commented to me is, um, you know, I would go nuts if I stayed in the emergency department because, you know, I'm there here for a knee or for a cough or for this or for that. But a lot of people don't have access to primary care or trying to get a primary care takes six to nine months to get into these days. Um and so the emergency department really is a fallback, uh, whether you like it or not. And there's lots of controversy in the world about, you know, how can we reduce this? But comprehensive physical exam is needed because it might be the only health care they see until they get a primary care for six months. You know, if yeah. they, and God forbid they get admitted, then, you know, that's a whole, it's a whole principle of, that introduction of is a very important for your admission. So, absolutely, and so I think that's that's an important thing to kind of remember that a lot of the experts out there are saying best practice when you are an emergency medicine physician is to still do that comprehensive history and physical exam, just because you don't know if that patient has access to healthcare. Yeah, and and um, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> The patient that doesn't show up often. I mean, there's 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 patients that you can pull up the chart and they've been there religiously, boom, 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 eight times in two years, 
right? Um, and they're there for a specific reason. Um, usually, you know, they have some type of chronic illnesses that get aggravated for them to show to the ED. And so there's a difference between the new patient they've never seen before for that, and then those patients that are very acute illness, but having the front of a T-sheet, you know, I call it the, you know, the T-sheet still kind of in my mind because I'm old, um, of the front of it is all comprehensive physical exam and review of findings, and then a little bit of the what you're ordering. And in the back of it, there's not that much of it that has diagnosis and strategic plan for that patient. And so it kind of flips the head on those chronic patients of getting credit for the chronic, I mean, for the comprehensive history to what are you doing for that patient? That's what my thoughts are. Yeah. So I think it's really important just to note that when you are leveling your emergency department visit, the leveling itself is going to come from your medical decision making in no way, shape or form um, by having an extensive history or an extensive or comprehensive physical exam. Is that going to deter away from your overall CPT codes? So, so when you are documenting, you'll want to make sure that you are documenting appropriately all of the interventions that you are doing around the care of the patient, what the condition is that's bringing the patient in. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that is so important in the grid. But I wanted to bring up the biggest change for emergency department is your CPT code 99281. Um, in the past, the 99281 was your straightforward medical decision making. Um, they have actually changed the narrative on this, which I think is super important because we had so many patients in the emergency department that were coming in for triage visits that we couldn't necessarily bill for because the patient was seen by the nurse and not by the physician. They have changed the CPT narrative for a 99281 to state emergency department visit for evaluation and management of a patient that may not require the presence of a physician or other qualified health professional. This narrative is going to be extremely telling for the emergency departments that have a nurse who is doing triage and that nurse goes through, does a physical exam on the patient, does a history on the patient, looks to see do they meet the protocol and the criteria to be pushed back into the emergency department to actually be seen by a physician. Those encounters in the past, we were not able to report or code for. Now, because the narrative has changed, those encounters could justify the billing of a 99281, which changes kind of the, the whole mindset of the triage process in the emergency department. Don't you agree, Dr. Hunley? Very much. Actually, um, when I when I was reading this, um, I was taught thinking about how design workflows for departments. Um, most, most EDs, and I've talked to now in the last week, two weeks, about five of my friends that say, hey, not only are they pushing us out to diagnose in the ED, but our triage is actually going from not the triage, you know, area, but to the chairs of people sitting in the chairs and the nurses is actually the nurse. I hate to say, I'm sorry, bad plural. The nurse is actually going out and triaging who needs to go back to the triage area. 
And so um, it, it actually brings up an opportunity for a system to be put in place to where you're going to get credit for the work that that nurse and you are doing in the communication process, which is very important. I mean, if you have a good triage nurse and a good physician, they're constantly talking. You know, this patient needs to come back. This patient doesn't. Um, you get credit for that. The, the thing is, is designing a process that captures all the elements of that nurse and the review of physician to get that credit. Absolutely. So I think this actually opens up more opportunities for emergency departments across the country to actually be able to bill for some of those services that they haven't been able to bill for, but they're, they're using their resources to be able to take care of those patients. Yep. Um, the other thing that I wanted to just make sure that I pointed out is under the CPT narrative, you will see that there is no time associated with any of these codes. There never has been time associated with the emergency department and that doesn't change for 2023. Time is not a leveling factor. Um, what is interesting, and I actually think that this is very, um, very appropriate, very telling is that the medical decision-making grid across the board is the same. They have now adopted the same medical decision-making grid for outpatient, inpatient emergency medicine. And so when you look at this um, grid and you look at the different things, we still have to have the nature of the presenting problem. So we're still going to have our straightforward, which is our self-limited or minor problems. We're going to have our low, which is more our self-limited, um, two or more self-limited minor problems, a stable chronic illness. Um, when you look at the emergency room, I wouldn't think that we would see a lot of straightforwards or those 99282s because these are your patients that are self-limited minor problem. There's a minimal risk of treatment. Where I would see that the emergency department um, physicians need to be really aware of what the guidelines are, are more your low, moderate, and your high patients, or mm -hmm. those, those low, moderate, high medical decision-making. And so with a low, you know, somebody typically isn't going to present to the emergency department if they have two or more self-limited or minor problems or one stable chronic illness where they're gonna come in to see is if they have um, potentially an injury or an illness and they're not sure how severe it is. So physicians can get credit for, you know, under the low category, acute uncomplicated illness or injury. Um, this would be the, the risk for these patients would be low um, from any type of di diagnostic testing or treatment, that's going to fall into your 99283 category. So when you look at kind of your patient population, these would be more your uncomplicated sprains or strains. Um, but really, the other things that would present in an emergency department, you would think would fall under your moderate or high level. Mm -hmm. um, what working with emergency doctors, Dr. Huntley, is that a pretty fair assessment when you think about, you know, what typically presents to the emergency department? Well, everything presents to the emergency department. Um, 
and you know one of the things <laughs> you get you get uh low you know coming in you get moderate and high um severity the question is is how and back to that conversation about the triage is a it's a time efficiency thing um poor most ed physicians pas time is uh fixed as you know patients are not fixed uh they're abundant so the key is and i and you've heard me say this for a very long time do the right thing document right efficiently without over documentation and you you win a win-win for the patients in you um i agree with you 100 percent. the question is is how do you rate that design the system to rate to, to see those patients design a process to where you the medical records and the emrs and i think that one of the reasons cloud everything because you you have to document a lot of stuff and the emrs I hate the term vomit, but they do vomit large amounts of data on an ER, mm -hmm. EMR that's useless. And then you have to code for how complex <laughs> this patient is. And so it's, it's a messy process. Well, and I think the, the beautiful thing about this new medical decision-making tool and the guideline change is to really avoid some of that note bloat that you're talking about, where providers are documenting things unnecessarily just mm -hmm. to get the credit. Um, one of the things I did want to point out that is actually going to be a big benefit to the emergency department is um, in the moderate risk category, we have an area that gives us permission to count for social determinants of health. And in the emergency room, there's a lot of people that present that don't have access to health care that may have lost their job and presented with an emergent basis or an emergent situation that they need addressed. Um, and so really and truly, I think there are a couple of pieces in this new grid that really would benefit the emergency department. And the one that I think is going to be the biggest benefit overall for them is going to be this documenting and communicating social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, it, it's in the ED, it is the wild, wild west, as ED physicians say. And that's great because you never know what you're going to get. But there are a lot of variabilities that don't have to do with the peer medicine. For example, yeah. you're right, homeless guy found on the streets in the middle of New York in, in the wintertime. Uh, doesn't you can treat him all you want but you're going to put him on the streets because he doesn't have a home and the shelters are filled uh the indigent um indian population that you know comes and goes in 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 wyoming or something and so all these variables in the ed determine mm -hmm. a the time you spend with them right uh how much resources do you need before i discharge him i need to figure a way for him to either you know clean his wound if he has a wound, get his medicines if he, does, if he needs medicines. Uh, you know, if he needs like complex care, how do I get to see him? Who gets to see him? Those are all things that an ED doctor, you know, and, and nowadays people get burned out because they just don't have those resources. And so it's a huge, um, it's an additive to our notes 
it also is the question is, well, how do we do it? What do we do with the, all this? How do we put social determinants of health in our note, get credit for it, that we're doing that work uh, and ultimately do the right thing for the patient and get paid for that extra work we're doing? Well, and that, that I think is really important to make sure providers understand, because when you look at the new grid, we still have the same narrative for the nature of the presenting problem. You know, your diagnosis codes, that's not going away. Um, you still need to be able to justify the medical necessity, the, the reason why the patient is coming in, and that, that really is through your diagnoses. And we still have the category for data reviewed and analyzed, which providers get credit now for each test that they review instead of in the old days where we only got credit for one, one for each category. Now it's every test that's unique to a CPT code you get credit for. But the risk for moderate with that social determinants of health, if the provider does three things, they can hold the risk on the, the risk for social determinants of health at that moderate level. And the first one is they have to identify what is the social determinant of health? Why, why is the patient um, classified in this category that maybe they're a deficient, they have a deficiency around the social determinant. The second thing is, how is that social determinant affecting their care? So example would be, you know, patient recently lost job, unable to get routine medical care, right there. That automatically raises the overall risk of the patient to a moderate level because you're going to be managing different problems because they can't get access or they don't have access to healthcare on a regular basis. <coughs> then the third thing is um, the diagnosis codes. There is a whole um, increased set of diagnosis codes for 2023 around social determinants of health. If you're going to hold your risk on social determinants of health and use that as part of your leveling, you really should be attaching a diagnosis code that reflects the social determinant of health in either your secondary or your tertiary position, just to show the insurance company, hey, not only am I treating this over here, but I've also got all of these social determinants of health mm -hmm. that I'm dealing with in conjunction, which automatically increases the overall management of this patient to a higher level. Yeah, no, actually, and that added with the complexity of, you know, the patient, um, really, you know, I hate to say this, and I just actually looked at some charts the other day with very complex patients and thinking, how does this, um, how is this going to affect the 2023 guidelines? Um, Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is how is what the chart looks like, looks at 2023 and how is it going to be documented? And um, <clears throat> there's a lot of vagueness as we all try to put in our charts. And part of it is medical legal. I mean, it, it, part of it is if we say something, we don't want to be held accountable for exactly what we say. That's yeah. In multiple, in multiple states, including, you know, state I practice medicine in, um, being too specific might burn you in the end, but at the same time, it doesn't reflect the severity of illness. Um, 
you know, for example, and this is generally now, even today, if you put syncope on, on a diagnosis, you're probably not going to get paid for it, or you're not going to be able to generate the highest level of uh, severity. Uh, instead of saying, you know, syncope secondary to, you know, cardiac causes or syncope secondary to overdose with acute respiratory failure and the diagnosis is, um, you also need to say, you know, found on the streets, you know, and that's a very important thing. And a lot of, a lot of physicians see, but if it's in my eight, it's in my HBI and you're going to have to say social determinants of health somewhere else in the HBI. Is that sound accurate to you? Yeah, because I mean, in the HPI, you can say that the patient was found on the streets, but for you to get the medical decision-making credit under, under social determinants of health, you have to be able to link that to how that social determinant of health is impeding your ability to take care of that patient. You have to connect the dots. I can't just mm -hmm. say the patient is homeless and get at get credit for social determinants of health i have to say patient is homeless which makes it impossible for them to do uh we'll do a colonoscopy for example if a mm -hmm. patient is homeless the ability for them to prep for a colonoscopy is very slim they need yeah. access to to a bathroom and when you're homeless you don't have consistent access to those things so you have to really link why is the patient or what is that social determinant of health and how is it affecting your ability to take care of the patient or that patient's ability to do what you're asking them to do? Yeah. And that's it. You know, EMRs are great because you can design templates, but if you design templates and make it note bloat, every, every note looks very similar to the other note. Um, you know, and I think looking and listening and reading and visiting over the last couple of months, the 2023 guidelines is they're trying to get away from note bloat as a physician. They're trying to tell what are you doing for the patient and who is this patient? Why, why is it such a complexity? For example, you just said that if you have a patient that comes in with GI bleed or something, you do a CT, you find a mass, you, it's not horribly that you admit that patient, he could go home if he had a primary care and follow up with a colonoscopy and in college GI, but he's homeless. I'm admitting him because he has a high risk, right? He's homeless, has a high risk, needs an inpatient colonoscopy. That means that you're going to have to go through those steps in order to get that severity of illness. And that's, and that kind of takes away the, um, softball pitches of, oh, I have this template for GI bleed. Bloop. Here it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, because the thing is, is now with these, the ability to hold your medical decision-making on different areas. And I mean, this was before as well. Providers really need to be specific and document around what is going on with that patient and not necessarily just templates. You know, I, I personally um, think templates are a good and a bad thing because I understand the need for templates to make sure physicians have an idea mm -hmm. of what needs to be documented. It's kind of like a tool to help 
prompt them to make sure they're documenting all of the key mm -hmm. pieces and the elements. But the flip side of it is, is I've seen so many physicians uh, do the same template, copy paste the same template and not make changes that are specific to the patient. No, that's and actually, so, yeah. you're right. You're right. And I mean, full, I mean, everybody knows we're, we're the provider partners. We do in podcasts because we want to get our name out there of what we do. We do templates. I mean, we help design processes that give your group a standardization of the process with a template, with standardization of coding and billing and reevaluation of that. But we also look at how we can make it efficient for the pay, the practice the practitioner, make it the best care for the patient, AKA social determinants of health and get credit for what you're doing. And templates are great. Um, now looking at the patient, I have a template. I can go through that process, say how back to the grids that we're going to talk about, hopefully uh, how, how sick is this patient? What's, what's causing them to get from my barrier to treatment and what is my treatment plan really is the new focus of, what we're determining. And that's a, instead of checking the boxes and a template, now the boxes that the template is really designing the process and looking at the severity of illness with social determinants health, the diagnosis, how sick they are, you know, moderate, severe, and what's the risk of them declining and what do I have to do? So, yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the overall grid because we're we're running a little short on time. So I want to make sure that we can address kind of this medical decision-making grid. So the medical decision-making grid um, has three areas, nature of presenting problem, data reviewed and analyzed, and patient management risk, which we've talked a little bit about all three of these areas. Um, the biggest changes for 2023 is not gonna be in your nature of presenting problems. That really did not see a lot of changes. They did add a couple of areas for acute uncomplicated illness or, uh, or injury requiring inpatient or observation level care. Uh, they did that add that to the low section for the overall medical decision-making. But other than that, everything is pretty much the same as what we saw with our 1995-1997 guidelines. Where we started to see some changes and where this is going to be important for emergency room physicians is in your data reviewed and analyzed. So now it is based off of categories. Um, the low, it's just two of the following, which is prior review of each external note, review of test results for each unique test, ordering tests, uh, independent historian. Where it starts to change a little is in the moderate and the high category. Moderate and high, it goes to categories. And you have category um, one, which is your test and results. Category two, which is your independent interpretation. Um, and that would also include like discussion of tests with other external um, providers. And then you have your third category, which is like the overall uh, management uh, discussion, you know, independent reviews, interpretations, those kind of things. And so for the moderate level, it's saying a combination of any one out of the two categories. So 
It could be any combination of review of external prior notes, review of each unique test, ordering each unique test, assessments requiring an independent historian. When we're talking about an independent historian, that is somebody other than the patient. This is where you have to get information from, say, maybe a family member um, because the patient is unable to give you that information. Then we have independent review and interpretation of tests. This is something that hasn't changed from your previous guidelines to now. It just is categorized a little bit differently. You still have to say that you independently reviewed and what your interpretation is to get credit. And then discussion of tests and management by or with an external provider. So when we're talking about external providers, this is somebody outside of your group practice. This isn't a conversation with somebody within your specialty or within your group. So that's, they really kind of um, changed and added some additional narrative where they're saying it's an external provider, just to give that additional clarification. On the high level, the high level, they're saying now you have to have two out of the three categories. So either you have to have all of the requirements met in your test category or the requirements met in the independent historian or the um, third category, which is independent review and interpretation of tests performed by another provider. That's, that's another piece that they have clarified the information saying, this is performed by another provider. Somebody else did the test. You are independently reviewing. You are giving the information for those tests. And then any discussion of tests and management with that external provider again. So Really, the difference is that we start to see change that emergency medicine providers are really going to have to know a lot about is that moderate and that high level, mm -hmm. because your data analyzed goes from one out of three categories for moderate to two out of three for high. And then also the overall risk for those areas for moderate, we still have the things in moderate like prescription drug management, decision for surgery. Those things are still lining up like we saw in our previous guidelines. The biggest change for your moderate here is that social determinants of health that we talked about. In the high level, um, what is what you will see in the high level is the same thing that we kind of saw in our other um, guidelines, you know, decision for elective major surgery with identified risk factors, our parenteral controlled substances, the decision to um, not resuscitate due to de-escalation of care. Um, they did add decision regarding emergency surgery, emergency major surgery automatically bumps you up to that high risk level. But really and truly where we see a big shift is drug therapy requiring intense monitoring for toxicity. This was rolled out in our 2021 guidelines and has been carried over into the 2023 update. Why this is so important is there are some medications that are given, especially in an emergency department, 
that it's not necessarily for a therapeutic titration. It's medication that's given on an emergent basis that you really have to monitor to make sure that the medication they're giving in that short-term encounter mm -hmm. is not causing additional issues or problems. And so you're monitoring it for toxicity. Uh, Dr. Hunley, what are some examples of some medications that you have seen for the coders that are listening, medications that you have seen that could meet this category for drug therapy requiring intensive monitoring for toxicity? I mean, things that are automatically high, but you need to monitor are things like Lasix for pulmonary edema, which we've talked about on our podcast forever. Uh, drugs that for hypertensive emergencies mm -hmm. that you want to look or or, you know, urgencies like labetalol, you know, IV, um, arrhythmia stuff. Like I'm going to give cardizem to, for, an, for arrhythmias. Um, some of the, some of the, um, electrolytes and replacement, you know, stuff, um, in the ED for like hypo, you know, kalemia, you want to monitor for arrhythmias, anything that your medicines in the, in, in the ED department that you're monitoring when you're giving them that you want to make sure that it doesn't make them decline. Um, and that could be, you know, like I said, electrolyte replacements, uh, diuretics, uh, short, I, you know, PRN, PRN pain meds is another thing. Hey, I'm giving them, you know, Dilaudid and they're, they're, they're opiate naive what's going to happen to that patient? Those type of things you have to, you have to monitor. So, and then you have to say, I am monitoring them in the note. Absolutely. So leading into what you had just said, in order for a provider to get credit for drug therapy requiring intense monitoring for that high risk, there's a couple of things that they have to document. First and foremost, they have to call out that they're going to monitor that patient for toxicity uh, you want to make sure that you use the word toxicity so the coders understand that this is a medication that's a little bit higher on the chain that they need to pay attention to. You also need to indicate what medication you are monitoring for that toxicity and how are you going to monitor it. And so typically it's through lab tests, physiological testing, any imaging. So you have to do a couple of things. One, you have to call out what is the medication that you are using? And two, how are you going to monitor that patient for toxicity? And there has to be some sort of test linked to it. You can't just say, I am monitoring that patient by checking in with them every couple of hours. There has to be some sort of tangible, um, tangible result that can show that the patient is not toxic. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, guys. Well, that concludes today's um, Thursday talk on emergency medicine. If you would like our free handout or cheat sheet around the emergency medicine rules and regulations, we have a really good put together cheat sheet that goes over the medical decision-making grid, critical care guidelines, as well as terms to familiarize yourself with like unique tests, unique source. 
uh, please email me at tracy at theproviderpartner.com and we will get this free resource emailed over to you. Yep. And, you know, and why we do this is to get our name out. We are, our specialty is to, you know, build a collaboration with the physicians and the coding team to optimize uh, documentation. It's not CDI because CDI is a pain in my butt. It's to optimize your time and get credit for what you have and, and go by the guidelines. And it, you know, if you're an administrator listening to this, we actually increase DRGs just by the collaboration with the team and the severity of illness, what we just talked about. So please email us. We want to help you. Um, we're not, you know, we're not the normal consulting team. We really love what we do. So thank you. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you all next week. Have a great rest of your week.